0: Hello and welcome to Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people that live, work and create in Somerset. My name's Lewis Webb and each week I'll be meeting some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. This week's episode is the last of our first series, so thank you to the thousands of you who have given us a chance and had a listen. Somerset is truly a wonderful county, and this season has only really scratched the surface of the stories it has to tell. With that in mind, we've already got some exciting guests lined up for season two, which will be coming in November 2020. It's been a great experience putting this podcast together. The reception I've had from guests and listeners alike has been so encouraging. As ever, your feedback plays a massive role in getting the podcast out there, so if you can leave a rating or a review, it's hugely appreciated. My guests for this final episode of the series are Jules and Steve Horrell, The husband and wife team who, between them, run the food and hospitality at Durslade Farm, the Somerset home of Hauser & Worth. Since opening seven years ago, Roth Bar & Grill has become a must-do destination for any visitors to Bruton, a culinary partner for local food producers, a haven for locals, and they've even had a visit from the Queen. Jules & Steve's whole outlook and vision is about creating a place to eat and enjoy with friends and family, with food that delivers great flavour without fuss and formality. We met earlier this month as the restaurant was setting up for its first visitors of the day, and as ever on Somerset Stories, there's some ambient noise, this time from the kitchen and other guests, but please bear with that. I promise you this one is worth sticking around until the end. Jules and Steve, welcome to Somerset Stories.
1: Thank you. Thank you,
0: Thank you for having me here at Roth this morning. It's a beautiful morning. And you guys have done a little bit of kind of, not renovation, but you've made the outside more accessible for, for COVID recently.
1: A few modifications out there with a the new tent. Yeah. yeah.
0: As a husband and wife team, what qualities do you admire in each other at work?
1: Who's going first on this one? You, you go first, oh, you normally do. I think the yeah. thing that I probably admire about you most is you just infuse calm all, at all times. You work so well under pressure. I'm not good at always being calm, but you're, you very, always have a calming influence on me. I think that's definitely a quality that I'd admire most of you.
2: <laughs> Thank you. For you... I think you're the opposite. No, you're a great that's networker. True. You're a great people person. Uh, you always make an opportunity out of out of nothing. You know, a simple conversation turns into uh, you know an amazing event or a great relationship with a supplier or a, or a customer. So I think you're just a very um, you know um, approachable. You are friendly. You know, smiley bubby all the time, and that's one of your, you
0: know one of your greatest.
1: I didn't pay you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Do you
0: find it easy to separate work from family life or does part of Roth kind of go home with you?
2: I do. <laughs> I find it very easy. I can switch off and go home and, uh, you know, do some gardening. Like, you know, we've got uh, all the whole uh, cooking set at home. So, I, you know, we cook on the fires, I've built a wood oven. So I find it very easy just to sort of switch off as long as you've got a, a happy team at work it's all ticking over, there's no, no issues, and I can quite easily switch off at half five, six o'clock if, you of know, a day.
1: I am a workaholic, yeah. uh, but because I love it, I'm hugely passionate. I think there's a, there's a merging line between home and family life and restaurant life. So it's something that I love. and I suppose I can't turn off ideas. There's always ideas happening all the time. I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking something new. You know, there's always bits to finish off in an evening, but not because I, I have to do that, just because it, it, I love it. It's, it's part of our life. It, do, it doesn't feel like just a job, I don't think, Rothbard grill really. It's a very different thing yeah. to your average job. So, yeah, so no, <laughs> in short.
0: Uh, Steve, do you, um, do you make a point sort of not to cook Roth food at home, sort of can't have anything from the menu? When you're, when you're at home.
2: Sometimes, you know, you get home and you've just been cooking all day and you you don't really want to you know, go into a great big meal. You just want something quick and easy. There are days like that, but during lockdown, we were trying some of the new dishes that we were going to put on the menu, um, you know, at home and sort of testing them out, which was quite good fun. Um, so yeah.
1: And your lockdown sourdough?
2: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah, we did what everyone probably did during lockdown, we, we did the sourdough, yeah. we did the kombuchas and uh, the water and all that kind of stuff and I think the, the sourdough was one that stuck and we've, we brought it back to work now and we, we've introduced it to the kitchen and uh, we've just continued yeah. it now and uh, going really well so great
1: yeah. share that bread with everybody it's
0: great Steve I've read that you didn't have a big foodie childhood you weren't a fan of your green veg yeah that's
2: correct uh brussels sprouts mainly it would always be put on my plate when I was younger and they'd always be the one thing that was left on the plate to the end of the meal. With a glass of water, I'd have a sprout, and a glass of water. It was that bad. Uh, I think it was because they were boiled, boiled to death. And now I've made a point of, you know, uh, cooking Brussels sprouts in a completely different way. You know, and I've got this go-to recipe. If anyone's ever says, oh, I don't like Brussels sprouts, it's always, you know, we always say, right, you need to slice them up, fry them in butter with pancetta. Uh, and garlic, a bit of thyme, rosemary, um, and then some chestnuts and cream. And you you will love Brussels sprouts. Now, when it comes to that season of Brussels sprouts, rather than kind of pushing the Brussels sprouts to the side, hiding from them, it's can we get extra? And, and our kids are like that now. They they love Brussels sprouts, but I I couldn't have a Brussels
0: sprout boiled. I don't think that's how you're supposed to eat. Them. Yeah, I think a lot of vegetables were just boiled.
2: Yeah, and so we we do a lot of cooking on fires and stuff, and. Uh, Grilling and roasting, and it gives all your vegetables a totally different flavour. With just an, an add of spice or some vinegar or something, it just takes those kind of boring vegetables to sort of a different place. So that's
0: that's how we cook now. You grew up in the West Country. Did your family place any importance on kind of local fresh food? Was it a big part of growing up?
2: It it wasn't. I can't I can't sit here and say I had a you know massively foodie upbringing because I, I I didn't. It was wasn't really that important. Um, I think mean we just. We were a family, we, you know. We went out and played and stuff, and it wasn't really a, a big, a big thing. It was just a meal time, and uh, nothing really stuck out. It was only my my grandma that really kind of, you know, if we went to hers, it was a great, a great Sunday roast and lots of dripping, you know, maybe too much dripping, uh, but nothing really. And My other grandma does great Cornish pasties. She's down in in uh, Plymouth, but nothing really at home stuck out as a, a real foodie upbringing.
0: I also had grandparents down in Cornwall, and one thing I experienced was just the huge significance of gathering everyone around a table for, as you say, that kind of Sunday roast. Was there the same, same ethos in, in your family?
2: Yeah, yeah, early days. I mean, uh, we all would go to my parents' house for Christmas and everybody would uh, come round, all the, all the different families and children and stuff. So it was always a big, uh, you know, all the different grandparents, a big gathering, but not so much now. I think, you know, people have passed away and moved on and stuff. So uh, we just try and do the same thing at home we cook like we've got 20 people coming to the house but there's just four of us <laughs> and uh, we have leftovers for days you know yeah. but it's that feel
0: of generosity and uh, you know a, a big meal yeah. kind
1: of. and sharing our food isn't it it's such yep. a nice thing to do yeah
0: and has that environment of as you say loved ones kind of gathering around the table and maybe like family style has that influenced the type of food you create as a chef as well not just at home
2: yeah, it does. I mean, when, you know, if we do a, a big event here or we do an event at home, it generally means lighting a fire and putting, a, you know, a nice piece of uh, half lamb or a whole lamb or, uh, you know, do a porchetta or something over, over fire. So there's always a what we call a bit of a show pony in the centre of the table or something, how we've cooked it and then just coupled with some simple salads that you would not normally have raw, or there's got to be a little element where you, you, know, you look at something and you think, oh, that's just a, some shaved fennel and courgette, and then you actually taste it and uh, you're like, wow, what, what was that in there? And it's just the little hidden sort of vinegars or
0: chillies or something like that that make it interesting. When did you start to gain an interest in food beyond just eating it with the, with the family?
2: Probably uh, when I was working at Badmison House, possibly. Um, I had lots of great opportunities there to go and do stages in places. So I went, uh, went to the south of France. I did a sort of two week stage with them and kind of the, the feel of the land and the food and stuff. That's what, you know, was a real kind of big change to me. And then working with some of the chefs there, it was a very Italian style. So that sort of river cafe style of cooking, um, sort of simple vegetables again, just paired with simple spices and, and vinegars and oils and stuff, makes you think, you know, actually it's quite easy to make these vegetables taste amazing and salads and things just simply with you know, lemon and olive oil yep. and, and some great salt. So,
0: Jules, you grew up a little bit further away. Just a bit. In <laughs> the District. What, what was family life like for you?
1: I think similar to Stephen away, didn't have a huge foodie upbringing. I mean, my childhood memories are times at Chatsworth, having picnics by the river. My grandfather was a really good cook. I always used to enjoy going to, to his house at weekends. Um, and I suppose that's where hospitality for me started. I started at a place called the Cavendish Hotel, which is on the, the Chatsworth estate. When I was 14, I had a work experience opportunity there. I went there for a week, um, and you know, at that age i would never even considered what I might be doing with my future. Um, but that sort of definitely taught me that hospitality was the industry for me. So it's very sort of early age. I was in, in a kitchen for a week, and just had the most incredible experience. I can still remember it now. So yeah, set the foundations for where where I've gone with the rest of my life. Yeah.
0: Did you first have any sort of memorable experiences on the other side, visiting um, restaurants or hotels with with the family?
1: So the sort of restaurants that we used to go to when I was younger would be ones that would have things like melon or soup or pate for a starter and then usually it would be if we had gone out for Sunday lunch, it would be a Sunday roast. Nothing very inspiring and certainly nothing that made me think, wow, I want to go and do that for a living. So I think it certainly wasn't until I had that work experience, that work placement when I was at school that yeah. made me think, you know, there is a different element here to hospitality and it's always like, it's a bit like theatre, isn't it? And putting on a show, I think. The industry so yeah
0: well, i mean i think the sort of family friendly restaurants back in those days were sort of like you know the little chef and the happy eater which yeah weren't weren't particularly not overly inspiring interesting <laughs> <laughs> but i guess as a parent back then as you know my parents were like let's just take them there because yeah they'll, they'll be okay
1: <laughs> it's a, it's easy and it's affordable and i think food wasn't hugely important to them so it was more about an experience than the food itself
0: you mentioned kind of the picnics um, and the estates. Was there a strong countryside vibe to your childhood?
1: Hugely. So we were, we lived in Baslow when I was younger. We were right on the edge of the Chatsworth estate. Um, so walking across the moors at Beelie, I mean, our holidays were spent in North Wales, the mountains and the coast. So very much countryside is, is in my DNA and has continued to, to do so. Small stint in London, but apart from that, it's, yeah, countryside is definitely my roots.
0: Jules, you mentioned London. You ended up working at Rules, the oldest restaurant in London. What was that experience like?
1: An incredible experience and completely different to anything I'd experienced before. So it was all about tradition. It was about heritage, very classic style of cooking. And I'd come from a great quality restaurant. Before that, I was working at a restaurant called Fisher's, which is very small. And suddenly to go to London, this huge city. And work in and you know rules is like you say it's the oldest restaurant in London it's a renowned restaurant it was incredibly busy um, so a completely different opportunity but one that I absolutely loved and a, a game is a lot of what I learned there as well so I think that love for game they they work with an estate in Scotland. So the, the grouse season and things like that became a, a reality that, you, you know, we, we didn't really have that experience in the Peak District.
0: Are you someone that embraces that depth, that level of tradition and heritage?
1: Yes, I think the, the heritage and tradition is, is really important, especially knowing where food comes from and the heritage and traditions of food culture. Um, but I think also coupled with that innovation and future trends of food, so both of which are a key interest to me. Yeah.
0: And how did you find London as a contrast to sort of where you'd come from?
1: Hugely exciting, really challenging. I remember my first day when I arrived um, in London, Victoria. Never been anywhere like that before in my life. I'm from a tiny village where everybody's really helpful and everybody talks to each other. And I remember asking various people, which way should I go? What, you know, where, where was this tube stop that I needed to go to? Nobody wanted to help. Um, so it was a huge culture change for me, but actually one that I, I settled into really quickly and embraced. And I was there for about 18 months and I loved every minute of it. wouldn't go back now, though. I think uh, countryside is definitely where my heart is. But it's always good to go back to London, doesn't it? And mm-hmm. Especially for, for the foodie side.
0: Meanwhile, Steve, where was your first uh, first steps in a professional kitchen?
2: Uh, well, I, when I started uh, college, you know, I was cycling... Uh, to and from uh college into uh, to my a local job in a, in a pub which wasn't anything really that special but you know you start from the bottom you know it would start in the morning usually washing up the pots and the pans left over from the night before and then uh, doing prep and then doing lunch cycle home come back cycle back do the evening service um and i kind of did that for a year and then i thought there's got to be more more to this changed college went to bath college uh, a great tutor, who kind of really pushed me. Um, a guy called Kian Maslin. He kind of made me, get, you know, move away from home. Basically, you know, you got to cut the cut the strings and go. So I went to the Cotswolds uh, and was, sort of did a little stint around in the Cotswolds for sort of three three or four years, um, working in the traditional country house hotels and stuff, and um, did a, an apprenticeship there. So I was coming back with some forwards to, to Bath every week. Um, and then I was in the Cotswolds for the rest of the week. And then uh, opportunity, uh, you know, I sort of thought, again, you know, Cotswolds, it's all a bit samey samey, but you know, it was a good grounding of, uh, you know, kind of this traditional um, way of cooking. And uh, an opportunity came up in Bristol, at a place called Hotel Man, and it looked quite, you know, interesting to me. So I kind of went down there for the interview, um, got the job and sort of moved there. Um, that's where i met jules i'll uh, go into more later but we met jules there and you know that was a, a good sort of year and a half two years there and then i was you know i was, I was getting into you know like you know, proper cooking and the cotswolds was a bit sleepy but you know we were in a, in a city center so yeah. it was it was busy uh and then after that there an opportunity i uh, which jules found me was at um, Babington house so her house group so that's where i then left to go there and i was there for a good uh, 10 10 11 years
0: in maybe those kind of earlier days at somewhere like Hotel de Van, did you did you get a chance to create your own dishes, or were you really kind of just learning the tools of the trade, the techniques, and putting in the hard hours? It was more
2: it was it was structured. So um, you know, yes, we could have a input into into ideas, but it was really uh, you know it was a busy place, and so we pretty much it was a, a, you know, a structured kitchen of you know this is what we're going to cook and uh, and this is how we're going to co-
0: and cook it. Did you? aspire to have your own kitchen your own dishes um at that point and also how important was it for you from a food perspective for your your work to be based in the west country
2: uh yeah no i i always you know it's that thing of working working up the ladder and um you know getting getting to the top and obviously yeah to get to get your own kitchen um and i think you just take opportunities as you know as they as they come along and it's, it's it's about meeting people and and those sort of those connections and that's how we you know how we got to where we are today really of um, you know next steps to you know different restaurants and you meet somebody there that knows somebody over and there and uh, and that's how we you know how we come to
0: where we are really. Jules what brought you to this part of the world?
1: To the West Country well I after London I saw an opportunity at a very Brand new hotel group called, and at the time it was an independent hotel, Duvan Winchester, um, working for probably who is still our today our hospitality absolute heroes, yeah. Robin Hudson, and he'd opened that in 1997, 1996 maybe. Um, so I went there. It was very early days. They'd been open less than twelve months, and I took a part time job in reception. Um, and at the time they were planning their third hotel, they were about to open their second hotel, and the third hotel was going to be Hotel Devane in Bristol, it's this beautiful old property. Um, and the opportunity came up there to move there as part of the yeah. opening team as sales manager. And as Steve said, that's where we met. Steve joined a sous-chef and I was working on the, the sales side, reservation yeah. events and things. So that's, that's sort of what, what really brought me here. And we stayed with them for a while, didn't we? But I think that was, for me, that was a, that move to the southwest was where I wanted to be. It, there's lots of similarities to the Peak District and the countryside and, you know, it's an amazing foodie haven in, in the southwest of England as well. So I think it sort of, it felt like second home, really.
0: Do you remember meeting for the first time? <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was in the room when Steve was being interviewed for his sea chef position. Sarah. So, ah, okay. Rather hoping that he got the job.
0: Yeah. Right. So you were, <laughs> you were easy on him with the questions. <laughs> I wasn't interviewing him. Somebody oh, else okay. was interviewing him. <laughs>
1: yeah. But, yeah. Definitely sat with my fingers crossed that maybe he might be coming joining the team.
0: <laughs> and you moved to Bruton ten years ago?
1: We've been in Britain for ten years. Yeah. So we were travelling into Bruton, weren't yeah. we? We were in Wiltshire at the time. And then moved to to Brougham, didn't we? So much closer, so we didn't got that sort of trekking back and forth. But we, we moved to at the Chapel in 2010. I think, I think it so, was, yeah. It? Yeah. So you you started. And a thing, first, it's that thing
2: you? of knowing somebody and the connection. So I, I knew the head chef there at the time. He'd worked yeah. with me previously at Babington House. Yeah. And uh, he he said, can you come and help me uh, on on a few events? You know, I was I was free, so I said, yeah. And i just got the relationship going there. And and, we thought it was a great place to work, a great building and a great people. So it was sort of he then left and I took over from him. And then, yeah, Jules then joined
0: yeah, um, and so on. Yeah. How long had the chapel been open at the time?
1: I think when you joined, probably about six or seven months. Maybe it was quite new, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe about a year. I joined about six months after Steve. So, but then very quickly knew about this project which at the time was, um, was actually an A3 piece of paper that was rolled out in front of us with this beautiful, what you see now, this U-shaped building here with the reception and the restaurant. And this was going to be a farm shop where the reception is. This was the restaurant and the kitchen and the bar. Mm. And we said, this is incredible, where is it? And it was just up the road. It's like, this is really exciting but never heard of Haesler and Wath. We knew nothing about the art world. We didn't know anything about the gallery. We knew nothing, nothing at all about Haesler and Wath. No, Hesler I,
2: Worth, did I we? just, like I said, I was helping out at the chapel and uh, we'd just done a, a, a birthday party with someone, done all this food to take away. And little, little did I know it was actually for, for Ivan and Manwina that I we were doing this take, you know, all this food was being prepared to take off site to, to a birthday party. And actually it was, it was for his birthday. So. It was a special birthday party, yeah.
1: wasn't it? Yeah.
0: Bruton's changed quite a lot since you arrived. You've probably been been a part of that change as as well. Have you noticed things being different or does it just sort of, you look back and you're like, wow, it's different now?
1: Do you know, I think Bruton's always been a special place, but it's been like a hidden gem. So I think Bruton has been a home for many, many, many years, like a long, long time um, of incredibly special, creative, Talented people, whether whatever industry they might be in, there's a huge farming and agricultural part here, isn't there? But there's lots of really creative, innovative people in the town, and I suppose what all these places that are opening up, like at the Chapel and Hazlemere and Worth and Grill, and now the Newt, has has put it more on the map so that people are more aware of it. So I think it was always there in the first place. It was just more. It maybe was. Um, more shadowed and more hidden, people weren't aware of it, whereas all that sort of press that's generated by all these different places has, has exposed it. Yeah. So, I, over yeah. the
0: last like, 18 months, you can't open a Lifestyle magazine without reading about this place, no, yeah. which must be incredible for bringing people from around the country to, to visit.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great visitor destination, isn't it? We've got such a stunning location in this area. You know, We've got these beautiful rolling hills, but then you've got Bristol and Bath. You know, you're not far from the coast. It's easy to get to. It's an hour and a half on the train from London. So there's, I think, there's always every reason to visit this area. You know, Stourhead is two minutes away. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, a wonderful location to be in.
0: When it comes to food producers and suppliers, what do you find inspirational about? the area from that standpoint?
2: I mean, there's, there are just so many of them, aren't there? It's, They're in abundance, and, aren't they? And a lot of them, you know, when when you find them and you start start using them, they want to deliver. They don't want to put it out to a bigger company to do the deliveries for them. They want to actually deliver their cheeses themselves. And then you get that that conversation going every time, you know, what are you up to at the moment? And they might have a new cheese coming on or it's, uh, salads or something, you know, and it just gets that conversation going, doesn't it? And if they've met yeah. somebody else that's producing food or is another restaurant? And I think it's just quite special to be able to to talk to them and have that connection all the time.
1: And that's almost part of what I was saying about the that was there anyway. And those people were there before. And maybe they weren't just supplying places in Bruton. But, you know, you've got the likes of Westcombe Dairy. They've been there for 50 years, the most incredibly talented, special farming family. Um and you'll find their cheese in Neil's Yard Dairy, you'll find it on the best cheese counters in the world. But for us, how lucky are we that Tom comes down himself and delivers us cheese every week? And actually, they're part of our extended family, so we have our, our family here, all our team members, and you know, we've probably got about 40 people, haven't we, yeah. uh, here at Roth. Um, but without our extended family of all those amazing growers and producers and artisans, we couldn't do what we do. They're, they're a critical part of, of our sort of DNA, aren't mm-hmm. they, really? And we're, we're just very lucky that there's so many of them, and there's lots of really tiny people. I mean, we're finding that now with a new project that we're working on, that, you, you know, if you really look hard, there's some incredibly um, talented new people coming to, to market now and food yep. and drink, aren't there?
0: And I think you, you hit on something about it being like an extended family. There is so much joy, I think, from food producers in the region when, when they find other people who are doing similar things or when they find people who can take their produce and turn it into something that will, you know, be amazing on a restaurant menu or will fly off the shelves in a, in a farm shop. The, the people are really at the center of, of the entire industry. Um, and I think just the, the size of that network and the closeness of people just sort of makes that, everyone wants everyone else to succeed. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I think, you know, restaurants, all, all restaurants are like a, they're a platform, aren't they? They're a shop window for these producers and these, these farmers. Um, and we're, we're hugely proud to work with them, but for them, it means they can come in and they can be proud that their product's on, on somebody's menu. So I think, you know, that's a lovely thing too.
0: As you mentioned, you've been involved with Roth and with the whole project since it was just on a drawing on a sheet of paper. What were the early visions and conversations about what you were trying to create?
1: I think the vision ultimately is um, of Ivan and Manuela, Worth. I mean they, they are we've worked with them now for, for near on ten years. They're the most interesting, exciting, creative people I think we've ever worked with. But they, you know, they and they have they had such a vision for this place that now we're nearly seven years now later, aren't we? Mm-hmm. You can see it evolving into everything that they, or hopefully, everything that they dreamed of. Um, but I think one thing that was really key to them, and that's why I think we've worked together so long, because we have that as a united thing: is never say no. There's always an opportunity. It's very easy in a restaurant to say, actually, no, we can't do that, or. But there shouldn't be a reason to say no if it's possible. You know, if you want to do something exciting, you want to do a great event, you want your dish slightly different, well, of course, just say yes. And I think they struggled with that sometimes from from other restaurants that they'd worked with for events and parties. So when it came to opening their first restaurant, you know, that was one of the key things, wasn't it? And I think alongside, and probably more importantly, coupling it with, uh, you know, their love of food their love of that general hospitality and their love of farming and the land as well isn't it just bringing that land yeah. to the table uh, this- and i
2: think it's also as well it's got to be you know always had to be accessible to to everyone
1: yeah that's really important you know
2: from the <laughs> the students, to the you know, the older generation, to the people with wealth, and you can come Everybody. here, you can have a cup of tea, you can have a, you know, a tomahawk steak, or it's whatever you want to do on, on whatever day, but it, it's everyone could be involved in it, and it's not just an elitist thing, or a, a locals thing, or everyone's involved, everyone. and I think it, and sitting here in our restaurant, which with all the walls full of all the art, it, it gives people access to art as well. Whereas you might be a bit intimidated to go into a gallery. I know I wouldn't personally go into a gallery because I feel a little bit intimidated, but not now because, you know, we work in a gallery. Um, But they can be intimidating places. But I think with the food and the drink and education and gardens and all of that, it just softens that approach to to the art, I think, doesn't it?
1: And I think the marrying of putting a restaurant as part of an art gallery exposes a new audience to that culture. Whereas if you, if you just put a garden or you put a gallery or you just put a restaurant, it limits it. Whereas what Dursley's created is this amazing platform that's open to everyone from all walks of life. For whatever reason, they might want to come, but they'll go and visit every element of it, which we see every day, don't we? When, whichever bit they've, they've booked a visit, they'll always go to yeah. all the rest of it as well. Yeah, yeah.
0: That experience that you describe with all those different moving parts, all those different elements, the farm, the garden, the gallery, the food, it's a really hard balance to strike to make that a sort of cohesive journey for people who are coming in. How do you get to that point where that balance is struck?
1: I think there's a there's a lot of work that's gone into that from all the teams on the site. You know, we've got so many different elements to that experience here at Derslaid. We've got. Um, you know you, you have this amazing world class art gallery. you've Pete Udo's garden. you know it's incredible that we have a, a Pete Udov garden here on the site. You have the restaurant, you've got all the outdoor sculptures we've, we've got the farm. and you know every week it's, it was a challenge to begin with. It was hard. It's two whole new worlds coming together between hospitality and the art world. and we had to learn to live in harmony, um, even though there was lots of different views and visions, weren't there? Whereas now we have a weekly meeting every week and we all talk about what what each other's doing. So there's lots of lots of different moving parts, but it's always really important to all of us that they work in a very cohesive way so that we get this amazing visitor experience. That hopefully is what is delivered from Derslaid on a daily basis. That's certainly the aim. <laughs> um, that everybody can come in and enjoy it all. Yeah. And for us, I mean what you couldn't wish to work in a more beautiful Location. I mean, where I, th- I think
2: we've done a lot of um, private work as well for Ivan and Manuela. So we kind of get that inside vision of what they're really like—not here as, as the gallerists, their you know, their private home. How they do hospitality. How they would expect to be served and looked after. And you know, if there's a real nice art to kind of what we do is giving that hospitality, but without showing it. Yeah. You know, and everything being there. Ready. like if you if you we look after them sometimes we do events for them you come into a kitchen and the tables full of cakes and biscuits and there's drinks there ready to go and it's it doesn't feel like you're at a hotel or a restaurant and there's waiters and chefs running around it's just seamless it's just there we do a dinner for them it's you serve a beautiful sharing ta- uh, food all down the table um great wines great crockery and glasses and stuff it's just it's just done seamlessly though isn't it it's not a big stand-on ceremony i think that's what it's always
1: not it's not even about um expensive food and drink either it's just it is about the quality it's really about the sourcing of that's really important to to all of us isn't it about where that food comes from and showcasing (laughs) it at its best um and just creating a beautiful show as well so you know you you turn up to something it can be something really really simple on the table but if it's presented in a beautiful way and Mm.
2: if it's deer you know like like we said before he said to you know it's not just good enough now say to him oh this is deer, beef or deer or whatever it has to be this is an aberdeen angus beef animal it was born and bred on the farm his farm you know it's his meat uh, it was killed on this day. You know, he really challenged you to know the whole story of that animal, which is good for you as well, because it educates you to kind of know more and more and go back to the, the back story of that animal. And then we have a closer relationship with our farmers and our stockmen to know how that animal is looked after. If it's a deer, I had the opportunity to then st- stalk as well. So if we've got a dinner coming up and, uh, you know, what's better to sort of say, oh, yeah, we have, you know, a uh, uh, roe deer. but Actually, I stalked this deer. You know, I shot it from so-and-so, we we gutted it, we skinned it, and I've cooked it, prepared it and served it to you and it's from your estate. You know, that he loves the story behind everything. It, everything has to have a backbone to it. And that, and that's for us as well. The, the table that you sit at now is not just a leather table, it's a leather table because Bill Amberg, one of our regulars, he was involved with us you know, you know, for a long time, and it's a relationship with all the local artisans, not just food and drink, it's like no, the leather, the wood. craftsmen as well. Everything you know. that you see, there's a story behind it. It's not just a bar, it's the story behind the bar and you know, the Roths s- and how they built it. It serves
1: a purpose, doesn't it? Mm. There's a real purpose, and I think that's, that's uh, such a shared vision between everybody that works and, and is part of Durslaid, and that, that is infused from I've been a Mummela that you know it they they're incredibly passionate about that aren't they yeah. about where things come from and mm. that you know that is it trickles right the way you through put something everyone.
2: down on a wooden board where's that wood from <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, it's not about you, what's just yeah. on the board it's yeah. about
1: where where did the board come from Where yeah. and we we're very lucky we have somebody um, so ben who looks after that side of the farm for us you know he he could make a board and he'll coppice the wood or he'll he'll take that tree or windfall and he'll make something beautiful out of it yeah. Yeah. so you've got that whole sort of element going on not just food from the farm which is what most people think but that was um, the early days I mean, it was always
2: always like questioning and but now he knows he takes it for granted that we know that he knows that we've, you know, we know, where the, we know like where the wood's come, we know where the meat's come from, but it's just if, he, yeah. if he's if he got somebody there and he wants you to tell the story, you're there
0: to, you know, the story is true. And there's, there. there's real depth to it. Yeah. yeah, a
1: lot of transparency.
0: Yeah. With the restaurant, as an experience, you walk through the kitchen, you have the salt room, you have the kitchen garden, and as you say, you use the fire, the paria kind of style outside. It feels like you're trying to remove the barrier between cooking and eating. That's a deliberate choice? Absolutely. It, it wasn't at first. Uh,
2: no, no it is, but at first we did have a, when we were designing the kitchen, the actual kitchen inside, we were looking to have a bit more of a barrier, a kitchen pass high, you know, so we could put the food on it and we could hide all our, all our mess behind it. Uh, but we, Louis Laplace, who, who designed the, and, uh, the whole site, We, many conversations about him just, he just wanted a large flat piece of marble, nice and low, people can see everything, the good and the bad. And we went backwards and forwards. And when the kitchen pass is clear, it's very clinical. It's just, you know, beautiful slab of marble. Uh, But once we're running as a restaurant, it's dressed with all the salads and all the herbs and vegetables, and we've got bookshelves on there and vinegars and pickles. We really kind of created these barriers without you know, actually intentionally putting barriers in there, but you can still see everything that goes on in the kitchen. And I think that was a big kind of battle at first, but then we kind of saw his vision and how how he wanted it. And actually it's it's an amazing place Mm. to work. As I say, it's not just you walk past the the salt room, you know, it's a big wow factor. You turn into the bar, again, the bar is a big wow factor. You go past the kitchen and you've got all the stuff out and we're cooking and again, you're like, wow. And then you turn into the restaurant and again, you're met with all the art and a beautiful dining space. And it's just so many kind of like sort of draw dropping moments where you kind of come through. And it, I think that was an
0: important thing for us, wasn't it? Yeah. Does having that open kitchen change how you run the process?
2: Yeah, no, it does. And we, you know, and we're lucky that we've got a lot of people well, a lot of people in the whole restaurant that have been here. Uh, with us a long time. In the kitchen, James, my head chef, he's been with me for well, 15 years or so in different places. We've, he's moved with me. Uh, and Lorna, she's been here since we opened as well. So it, we've got a great bunch of people. Kitchens behind closed doors can sometimes be quite stressful, you know, quite uh, lots of swearing and lots of not, not very nice things going on. But we're an open kitchen. We're all friendly. We know it's a bit of a show. Pre. COVID, we'd have everyone sat at the bar watching everything going on in the kitchen. There's so much to sort of see and do and uh, you always get people talking to you when they walk past the kitchen, asking you questions, you know, what was that? How did you cook that? So it is a real, it does sort of change that you have to be more interactive, basically with people.
1: It, I think it allows our team to be interactive as much of our front of house team as our back of house team, because they, they get that sense from the guest as well when the guests leave the restaurant and they actually you know fine we will go into the kitchen and say you know mr jones absolutely loved that today um, but to hear that from the guest is such an uplifting thing for the kitchen team to hear and to see and it allows them to be so proud of what they do and rightly so because they're you know they're an incredibly talented team in what they what they do but as everybody leaves they're uh, you know they love it don't they to yeah to say to all of you how how great it was and when they come in as well you almost sometimes don't need a menu because they're they're looking at everything and saying oh so chef what's that on the grill and what's in that salad and yeah. they've already decided before they sit down part of the time haven't they what, what yeah. they're having for lunch and, so.
2: <laughs> and I think you know, like you touched on the salt room the salt room was a uh, wasn't uh, we didn't have that when we first opened the restaurant and it was always a conversation previous to the re- opening the restaurant and it was a a butchery in, um, in Sydney, Australia, I found a picture of this beautiful salt room, which I took, took a picture of, uh, and I, sh- I showed it to, to Ivan, you know, I said, oh, you know, what do you think to this? He said, that's amazing, yeah, we, we, we do this. And we kind of just, you know, folded up his piece of paper up and just, you know, left it. And then it wasn't, it was probably a year, was it? Maybe six months after we opened? Yes. He's like, you know, so where's this fridge? You know, when are we going to do this fridge? I was like, you know, fridge the size of a I bus. I don't really think we have got any <laughs> space now in, in, in the actual restaurant space. <laughs> and he says, oh, I give you this space, you know, where, where it is now. So it was part of the gallery, uh, gallery space. So he says, I want this fridge the size of a bus. <laughs> and, uh, and for us, it's not just a, you know, a showpiece. It's, it's, you know, it's got all our beautiful meat in there, but that's actually our meat from our farm. So it tells the story. It's like the shop you know, the shop window of uh,
0: of the farm. Yes, yeah. you know. and because where it is, people could be forgiven for thinking it's like an exhibit. Yes, well,
1: people. We had a TripAdvisor review in the very, very early days of the Salt Room that somebody said, oh, there's Damien Hirst in in the gallery reception. <laughs> and we decided initially not to put any um, any sort of narrative on it or any information. And at that point, we thought, actually, we need to tell the story so we had this beautiful body of text um, applied to the front of the fridge so people do understand that actually it is a piece of art We and it says that on there this is the art of food. Yeah. It's just not Damien. No <laughs> and we you know we had this opportunity that rather than having something in a fridge at the back and you know it is a beautiful thing to see and we're so proud to share what our farm team do that to, to have our meat hung there is is just that That you know, it's incredibly special, isn't
2: it? Yeah, and you saying about the um, you know the outdoor cooking equipment, and uh, yeah, we started that kind of journey when we when we were before we opened this uh, Rothbard Grill, we would do a summer party for the family, which they would invite the whole of the uh, all the
1: locals came to the party, you know,
2: the town to basically onto their estate and. we got looking for a book this guy you know we didn't know really much about him uh, francis malman and uh, he had this seven fires book and we were flicking through it and we were like, oh you know we'd love to do this you know this lamb asado so uh, we went away spoke with a um, blacksmith engineer got this uh, asado grill uh, made up and then we we trialed this we, we went down to the woods and cooked one lamb and, and we bill just
1: came didn't he bill who made the The tables for us, he did these beautiful leather tables. He turned up, didn't he, on his Harley Davidson with pudding. He he had a box on the back and he'd been picking blackberries in the morning. So we have got this amazing lamb and then Bill's blackberries for dessert. It it was about locals that had
2: been, you know, Bill had some time in Argentina as well, so he kind of gave us a bit of knowledge. Feedback, Um, yeah. And so we just trialled this one lamb, you know, see how long it would cook, how much wood I would need. And we then sat down and ate it and, you know, it, it it was lovely. So we then kind of, you know, when we came to the summer party, we then did these lambs every year and it just became a thing of, you know, what can we do next year? What can we, you know, wow people with next year? And that's really where we've just, you know, we've ended up with all our cooking equipment out here and that's, that's how we cook for
0: events. It's
1: all the team's toys out there.
0: (laughs) So you've been open, you mentioned coming up seven years. What are some of the fondest memories over that period?
1: My gosh. We've done a lot in seven years, but in some ways it seems like yesterday. I think, probably for me, the, the best memory was the opening parties. And we had weather like we have today, it's absolutely glorious for the whole week. And every day there was a different celebration or party that happened. The biggest party we did was for the local community. So we had around 2,000 people on site that day. We did parties for press, didn't we? We did a wonderful dinner for all the artists. But it was just this seven day um, memory that I think I will never forget. I mean, it was just an incredible time, wasn't it? And then on the very last day, we were doing a dinner or lunch, maybe for 400 people in this huge tent um, outside. And we'd had glorious weather. We'd all got a bit complacent about this Mediterranean weather that we'd had all week. And just as Nick Sirota finished his speech, to everybody, the heavens opened and it poured with rain. And we were running back and forth to the kitchen, all of us, with, with our green umbrellas. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't expect that. Um, but no, it was a really memorable week. I
2: mean, recently we went to, uh, last, in the last couple of years, we went to uh, Hong Kong. We got the opportunity to do uh, Art Basel in Hong Kong. And that was a bit of a whirlwind uh, trip. We sort of spoke about it, I think, on the, on the Monday. And then we were in Hong Kong on the Sunday. Uh, Ivan was just like, I need you to go, if you want to do it, I need you to go now. And we were like, what now? And he's like, well yes, we, f- we fly this weekend, do you want to come with us? <laughs> and we were like, oh, uh, how do we, someone to look after the children, what do we do with the restaurant? <laughs> so we literally... Worked it out. We worked it out and we were there for less than 24 hours and then I was uh, joking with the guys that I was back in work on the Tuesday morning before everyone else was here, I was back at seven o'clock ready to work.
1: We just got off the flight, No, no sleep or anything.
2: <laughs> but, uh, so we went just to do a, like a recce trip and just to see the area and uh, meet the, the rest of the team that we're going to be working with over there. And then over the next uh, sort of couple of months, we went back again and then we went back to do the event. But it was just a great food experience for us. Um, we recreated
1: Somerset in Hong Kong. So what what we've done here and what what you would see here for things like our pumpkin festival and the summer party and all the amazing events that Durslade puts on, we we did that. So I think one of the biggest challenges of that was shipping all the things, all the really special elements of of Somerset and what we do here, shipping them out to Hong Kong. And although we can't take our meat with us, we did do a lot of the, the same dishes. But we did take cheese, so we took Tom's cheese. Julian Templey were huge fans of what what they do, so we shipped their their Somerset cider brandy. So there was lots of sort of elements of Somerset that if if we if Roth was going to do this event, then actually all the elements of Rothbard Grill needed to go there too. So, it, but it was a great it was a great thing to do, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And then when we opened hay bales outside the front of the restaurant in the middle of Hong Kong, and we put bunting up, I think the the whole team thought we'd gone crazy.
2: Yeah. <laughs> But it, it was a bit of a double-edged sword because while we were doing that <laughs> in Hong Kong, the rest of the guys here were hosting the Queen. She came to visit. Roth and we, we missed it and we on missed March it. the 8th. Sorry, yeah. talk about being double booked.
1: <laughs> <laughs> March the 8th last year, the, you know, the, never to, we will never see that again in our right. lifetime. Yeah. And she was here and, our, you know, was so proud for our team to have that moment. And she came in and she came into the restaurant, didn't she? Mm-hmm. We a incredibly special and the team were whatsapping us photos all day of this is happening so you know they they know that we we love it and we couldn't believe that we missed it but um it was great for them it was great for us to see all the pictures so yeah but a sad day to miss
0: but it's (laughs) it is amazing to have that visit as part of the restaurant's history Mm -hmm. the gallery's history
1: Definitely. Yep. Hugely important. And I think for the whole town as well, she came because Kings Bruton here in the town were celebrating their 500th um, anniversary and, you know, everybody in the town embraced it. And it was like a coronation. Everybody was out on the high street with their flags. The whole town got involved, the schools and the church and everybody. Yeah. So it was incredibly special time. But we saw a lot of pictures. So you sort of felt like you were here. You
0: were there. In that relatively short period of time, Roth and Hauser & Wirth as a whole has become a bit of an institution in this part of the county. To what extent do you feel the need to stick to what you do best versus try new things and experiment a bit?
1: I think the whole site is always evolving. It's been a big learning curve for everybody. It's important to us to be, you know, to all of us to be... um, accessible like we said as a as a team to all people from all walks of life and i think you need to keep that sort of level visitor experience but also we're always looking as a team of what what can we do next what is the next challenge what's the next event um and i think you have to keep things fresh and exciting so there's the expectation you know you've always got this beautiful garden you have this incredible gallery you've got a great restaurant um, but people would get bored if you get complacent. So I think we're, we're always looking as a team, aren't we? We meet every week, the gallery team, the garden team, the restaurant team, we're always talking about fresh ideas and and what's next. And whereas, I suppose before, when we first all started, we were looking maybe what's happening next month or the month after, now it's far more strategic or what are we doing next year? And, and that sort of long-term planning. So there's always exciting things coming. Yeah.
2: And I think we also, as well, with our, you know, we do have a real kind of a, a local, loyal following as well. And I, I think if you go to a restaurant on a regular basis, it's nice to have that recognition from, from the people that serve, from the people that cook. So if we, we have a lot of people that we've grown to know and cool, you know, our friends now, uh, it's just nice to go out there and meet and greet them, basically, and to know what they like to eat, know what they like to drink. Um, and I think that just makes people feel they're part of it and, and welcome, don't they?
1: I mean, they're, the, they're the, the other part of the family at the end of the day. You know, we've got all these people behind us, all these producers and growers and artisans. And then on the flip side, you've got all our amazing guests. Mm. And without them, and like you say, we, so yeah. our, we have a, um, a system that we use when we when we take bookings called Res Diary. And on there, you, they, it has this facility where you can put red for VIP. We don't use red for VIP. We started to because red of all the people that we knew, and now probably seventy-five percent of the bookings every day are in red, because you, people are so incredibly supportive, and I think we're we're very lucky that the the local community and the sort of further afield local community have supported Derslaid in the way that they have, because without them, it you know it wouldn't work. So.
0: So what is next on the horizon, what can you tell me about what's going on next door?
1: The building site as you came in. (laughs) So Durslaid Farm Shop is due to open um, on the 2nd of November, so we're not far away now, very exciting. And the farm shop's been a vision since before this project opened as a whole, Um, but I think it's such a special project for us, it's one we've always sort of parked until the time was really right. Um, And we started the BUILD project at the end of last year. little bit delayed, probably about four weeks due to COVID. Um, But the farm shop, we want it to be a place where we can share all these amazing producers. But also we can find new ones. So we're working with really some really special, interesting um, people, aren't we? So there's a, a guy that's making kombucha and he's just making it at home. But he's been a guest of the restaurant for many years we've always gone on really well with him and he approached us so we're working with him we're doing lots of collaborative projects on things like marmalades there's a range of um ceramics by a local potter there's some really in we're working on a charcuterie range with wesker and we're doing the cheese with the wonderful penny and marcus um, down at Feltham. so uh, just another way of sharing this incredible food and drink um, industry that we have here in, in the South West, but as local as possible. You know, we're really focusing on Somerset and, and sharing everything that is is available from the land here. So and yeah. back
2: to that thing again, you know, that thing, every, everything that will be in there will have a story behind it. It won't you won't just be going in there to buy a piece of cheese or a, or a, or a carrot there's going to be a story behind that carrot because it's come from our walled garden our up garden. at Brown Till. From our amazing gardener. Yeah, and it's just yeah. all those different connections. It, his brother works here in the restaurant. The older brother works in the walled garden. And it's their always, other brother used to work
1: for us as a kitchen porter years and years and years ago. Yeah. So they're, they're the families that in the area, they, yeah, we tend to see their children work for us and then a brother will join and then sister joins and mum and dad are on the terrace having lunch. And so it's a very close-knit, special community. And I think we're, we're quite lucky to be um, yeah. within it, aren't we? Definitely. Yeah.
0: Jules, Steve, we're now going to play Somerset Levels, which is the game where you have to guess whether locations in Somerset are going to be higher or lower than the previous one. Okay, So I have in front of me... Uh, a list of places arranged at random. There's there's no skill here. It's just guessing. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to give you the first one, and then we'll go from there. You'll have to guess whether it's higher or lower. This should be fun. <laughs> this is the last the last episode, so the last ever game. The the score to beat is seven. So we'll see we'll see how you guys do. No pressure. No pressure. Okay. The first place is, oh there we go, Dunkery Beacon, 1,705 feet above sea level. Do you think the next one's gonna be higher or lower than that? <laughs> Given that I've just told you that it's the highest place in Somerset.
1: We'll go with lower. We'll
0: go with lower, okay. <laughs> Good guess. Uh, Ashton Windmill, 142 feet. Uh,
2: the next one's gonna be higher. You think higher?
1: Higher.
0: Correct. The East Somerset Steam Railway in Cranmore. Have you been?
1: Years ago, yes. A very long time ago. Yeah? Some guests went last weekend though and they loved
0: it. Oh, very nice. I still haven't taken my kids, but yeah, they will at some point. So we're at 604 feet, higher or lower? Lower, okay, lower.
1: Yeah, lower.
0: Okay. It is lower. It's Brian Down on the coast, which is 274 feet above sea level. Next to the beautiful green Sands. Um, higher or lower? We should
1: probably get higher now. Higher. I think, yeah. higher.
0: It is higher. It is just out the window. It's the Dovecote in Britain.
1: Oh, our neighbour. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: which you can see from here.
1: <laughs> we definitely can. We can see um, it from all over here. But it's
0: only just higher. It is 283 feet above sea level. Lower. Lower? It is lower. The county ground in Taunton, which is where Somerset played their cricket. Are you cricket fans? No, but we have a cricket pitch next to our house. We That's do. true. We've got yes. the little
1: cricket ground. Yeah. Is, it's so nice to see them playing cricket again. Yeah. We love it.
0: And there's the one from, uh, you can see in from the garden as well. And from here, so, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. At Kings. Yes. Yeah.
0: yeah, it is nice to see cricket kind of. It's
1: nice here. to see it and to hear it. It's yeah. a wonderful thing.
0: Okay. Higher, next
1: one. I think it's got to be higher.
0: It's lower, I'm afraid. Oh. It's Clevedon Pier.
1: Oh. Which is basically <laughs> at
0: sea <C> level, so. <laughs> you can't go lower than yeah,
1: that. Yeah,
0: you can't really go <laughs> much lower than that. But you got five.
1: That's good. Which I
0: think puts you on the leaderboard. That's okay. good. It's good enough. It's a, it's a good note to, <laughs>
1: to, end, to end the
0: series on. Oh,
1: um, thank you so much.
0: Before we go, where, where should people look if they want to find more about you and the work you're doing here?
1: I think they can visit our website, which is rothbarngrill.co.uk, or just come and see us here in Britain. So come and visit us. We've got the gallery, we've got the garden, we've got the restaurant and the farm shop from the beginning of November. But while we're under COVID, definitely just remember to, to book your space in advance. So yeah, we look forward to welcoming everyone. Yeah. And thank you so much.
0: Yes, thank, thank you. you. You've been amazing guests, and I look forward to uh, coming back and getting some food. Definitely
1: Very do. Soon.
0: Exactly. Come and see us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram at Somerset Stories, or email us, hello at somersetstories.com. See you next time.